Amen. Well, last week we started a new series called The Devil Made Me Do It. We are looking at temptation and what it means to face temptation and to have some kind of success or victory in the face of temptation, to overcome that and avoid all the pitfalls that temptation can lead us into. So just a quick summary from last week. If you haven't watched this, we do have a YouTube channel. We're going to start putting our our sermons up on YouTube, and we usually have the podcast available uh, sometime on Sunday afternoon. So if you miss it and you want to uh, keep along with us, especially in a series like this, I would strongly encourage you to check out the messages on one of those two channels. But temptation is seemingly uh, the urge or the desire to do something, say something, or see some, uh, think something, excuse me, uh, that we know we really don't want to do, right? I mean, we do want to do it, but like at the core of who we are, we don't want to do it because we recognize that in doing those things, saying those things, or thinking those things, yes, thinking the wrong things, um, we kind of put ourselves in a place where um, we could have some bad experiences. It's going to lead to some negative consequences for things uh, for us and for the people that we love. To be tempted is to be human. There's not a single human that's ever walked the face of the earth that hasn't felt the desire to do something, say something, or think something that they shouldn't do, right? And we want to avoid that because we don't want a bad life for ourselves, and we certainly don't want something that we've done to harm the people that we love the most. And so we're trying to avoid that. And if we're going to avoid that, we've got to think this way, that saying no to the things we shouldn't do will make our lives better and better the lives of those that we love, all right? That's what we're going at. That's kind of the bottom line of why we're trying to learn how to deal with temptation. We know that temptation is rooted in evil, and evil originated with Satan, right? But it does us no good to just kind of pull an Eve in the Garden of Eden and say, well, it was the snake that made me do it. He's the one that lied. It's really not my fault for eating that fruit. It was the snake that deceived me. And that excuse of the devil made me do it has literally been in existence since the beginning of time. And so we're going to need some type of help to face temptation, to look it in the eye, and to say no when temptation comes our way. And one of the things we looked at last week is the fact that Jesus can help. Jesus can help us in our dealings with temptation. And the reason we know this is because he was tempted. Remember, one of our favorite verses from last week was Hebrews 2.18. It said, since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So when Jesus came to earth to have a human experience, right, he was fully human, fully God. One of the beautiful things about that is we no longer have a savior or a messiah or a helper or friend who doesn't have anything in common with us. In fact, he has everything in common with us because all of the highs and the lows of life that we experience, all of the the rejection that we face, the failure we might experience from time to time, these were all human experiences that Jesus had, including temptation. And we started to look at last week the temptation of Jesus, the most famous temptation of Jesus, as he's led into the wilderness and faces off with Satan one-to-one. So just to remind us a little bit about last week, This is taken from Luke chapter 4, and these are the first four verses that we're looking at. Remember, immediately before this story, Jesus had been baptized, and Jesus had been announced by God, this voice in heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am pleased. So everyone knows Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is divine, and immediately this story comes next. It says, then Jesus left the Jordan, where he was baptized, full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Remember, he was led by the Spirit. This was ordained by God. God 
had asked for Jesus, and this is part of his plan, that Jesus was going to face off with Satan in the wilderness, right? So God doesn't lead us into temptation because we don't have kind of this epic good versus evil kind of mission that Jesus had. But that was, in fact, part of God's plan for Jesus is that he faced off with Satan, the first of three we mentioned last week. It said, while he was there, that he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over... He was hungry. So fasting from eating for 40 days leads him to this very legitimate experience of human hunger. In his hunger, Satan approaches him and it says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. Right? So if you're the Son of God, that's what everybody just heard. You were just baptized. You just came out of the river. Everybody heard this voice saying, This is my Son with whom I'm most. If that's who you are, then let's exercise that power, exercise that autonomy you have, that, that ability you have to do miraculous things and satisfy your hunger. Um, give in to that craving. You don't have to be hungry forever. You've got the ability to do whatever you want. So why don't you turn this stone into bread and satisfy that? But Jesus, recognizing the temptation, understanding his purpose, answered the devil by quoting from Deuteronomy. He said, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So this first temptation was Satan's attempt to hurt Jesus in the moment right where it hit the most. He was, the thing that he was experiencing more than anything in that moment from a need standpoint was the need to eat. And, and Satan was going to tempt him where he was weakest, right? He said, if you'll just ignore God and use your power to eat, then everything will be fine. And I think that one of the things that I, as I was thinking back on last week's message and, and listening back to it, that I wish I had kind of harped on a little bit more, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more today in this, is that I believe um, one of the things about recognizing where we're tempted and the things that tempt us that can also be helpful is to understand that we are most susceptible to temptation in our moments of greatest weakness or our moments of greatest exhaustion, maybe, or our moments of greatest frustration, right? Like when we are really upset about how something is going at work, or at home, or in some other area of our life. When we are just, it's so easy for us to give into temptation in that moment because we're grasping at anything to, to change that experience, right? When we're, when we're really tired, um, we, we have kind of our guard has been let down. And so temptation is that much more alluring or that much more enticing to us. And Jesus demonstrates here that there is still an opportunity, even in a moment of great weakness, in a, in a, in a moment of, of legitimate need and hunger, to still say no. But it would serve us well to not let ourselves get to that point of great weakness or frustration or exhaustion because that's where we can really have a tough time with fighting off temptation. So Jesus had to decide what, what, what he was going to do. What am I going to do with the, the power to turn this, this stone into bread, the desire maybe to turn this stone into bread, but this understanding that, that God has called me to something more. Remember, Jesus needed to say no to temptation. He needed to continue to live a sinless life Because it was only Jesus' sinless life that allowed him to serve as the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. So when he said no to temptation, he wasn't saying no just because he he, he had the power to say no to, to, to Satan. He was saying no because it would have taken him off course to say yes. If he had sinned, if he had crossed that line from sinlessness to sinfulness, then he could not have served as a sacrifice on the cross for us. So he quite literally said no to temptation for you and for me so that we might have a savior and a relationship with God forever. 
Remember that like in this particular passage, one of the things we were looking at were what to do with our desires, what to do with our cravings, what to do with our feelings, right? Because feelings are meant to reveal things to us about ourselves. Hunger reveals the fact that you need food. To be tired is to reveal to yourself the fact that you might need some rest. But our feelings should never be the things that drive our decisions, or at least they shouldn't be the only thing that plays into our choices and our decisions. And I love the fact that we just sang that song because as we're singing that bridge, it just, I'm, I'm reading it up there, I'm thinking through all this kind of stuff, and we said, I won't be formed by feelings, I'll hold fast to what is true. That's the, that's the beauty in singing songs that, that reinforce scriptural and biblical truths, is that, is that I can be reminded that, that I don't need to be formed by feelings. My, my decisions don't need to be made by the things I'm experiencing. That if we're held slave or captive to the things that we feel and elevate that to the top line of how we make decisions, ultimately it's going to lead us in a lot of dangerous directions that will probably give you a terrible, miserable life experience. You do not want to live your life satisfying craving after satisfying craving, giving into a feeling. You've got to look at your feeling and go, why do I feel this way? In the face of, of why I feel this way, what is the proper way to handle that, to, to satisfy that, to fulfill that, and, and say, okay, there are certain things that might satisfy this in the moment, but I know that for my long-term good, I'm gonna have to say no to that, and that there's probably a deeper source of fulfillment that God has for me. I don't, I don't wanna just give in to every feeling that I have. So Jesus' response, right, quoting scripture, Deuteronomy 8, showed that he valued God's purpose, he valued God's mission for his life more than he did his craving and feeling in the moment. And the most dangerous temptations we're gonna face are the ones that appeal to our legitimate desires. Like the things that you're actually feeling, that they typically do resonate with you because it's a real experience of your life. But what they are doing is they're trying to give you an illegitimate way to satisfy that feeling rather than the more legitimate, deeper things of God. So we're going to continue reading the story today with the next four verses, starting in chapter 5. Jesus had said no to turning stones to bread, and so Satan takes a second approach. It says he took him up, talking about the devil, the devil took Jesus up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Okay? He said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So if we go back to verse 5 right here. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said to him, I will give you all their splendor and all this authority. You have to kind of get this picture, right? I, I love kind of visualizing how this is all done. Jesus is in the wilderness. He and Satan are sitting down, and Satan's like, okay, I tried this stones to bread thing. You're stronger than I thought you were, right? You'd already been fasting for 40 days. Silly me. I should have known you weren't going to give into that one. But how about this one? What if I take you up, and I show you the whole world, and I say, you can be king of this world? You can, be, you can be the most adored, the most praised. You can receive the glory from all those people that you see walking down there. Like, you can be it. And I find it quite ironic, if you will, that the devil takes Jesus up above to look down on the world that he played a significant part in creating. Like, can you just imagine Jesus in this moment like, I've never seen it like this before. Like, no! I mean, Jesus got to be looking at this guy like, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good view, right? Yeah, I know, I created it. 
But in this moment, the devil thinks he's got him. He's like, man, I can show like all this. I mean, and it's got to be. It's like when you're flying in a plane and you're looking down like, golly, look at all of that. It's amazing. And if someone sitting next to you on a plane was like, yeah, what if I told you you could be the most important thing in that little world down there, that everything moving, all the cars, all the people, all the buildings, they'd all be for you. That's a pretty enticing offer to have that kind of power, to have that kind of esteem, to kind of have that, that kind of reputation, if you will. But Jesus wasn't moved by that. And there's a couple of reasons that Jesus wasn't moved by that. The first reason I think he wasn't moved by that is because he recognized that Satan was lying in a couple of ways. So when, G when Satan says, I will give you their splendor, all this authority, because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want, he's not actually being honest. See, Satan has a lot of influence in the world. We talked a little bit last week about this mosaic of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. We kind of put it together, these different passages from different books of the Bible, to have an understanding, a biblical worldview or understanding of, of who Satan is, who the devil is. And we'll probably get into that in, a, in another series at another particular time. But the cliff notes are that Satan was a, an angelic being, an angel, if you will, who rebelled against God. He wanted the authority of God. He wanted to be on the same throne or the same level as the creator of the world. And in doing so, in that rebellion, God kicked him out of heaven, all right? So he's no longer an angel on the good side. He's now this former angel that has influence as he roams about the world, the world that you and I live in. We know that all evil originates with, with Satan, and it all originates from the original rebellion of Satan against God. That's why he's kicked out. And the Bible says clearly throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, that Satan has a lot of power, but what it really means is a lot of influence, okay? So he has a lot of influence over things that are happening here. It also says specifically that, that Satan has no power over the person that has the Holy Spirit in them. So once you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior and the Holy Spirit has come into your life, Satan's hands are off. He cannot actually harm you or touch you, right? Any more than you want to give in to the lies that he is spreading throughout the world. So you're a little bit off limits to him, but you're not off limits to dealing with the consequences and the influences that he has going. So um, he has this influence. He's roaming the, the world, trying to devour. The New Testament, one of the writers says, he's roaming, looking for someone to devour, someone to mislead, someone to cause trouble in their life. Satan is actively rooting for our demise. That's all you need to know about Satan. Uh, in the New Testament, it talks about a couple different ways. Jesus uh, actually says that he's the ruler of this world. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says that he is the God of this age. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that he's the ruler of the power of air. Okay? Uh, at Galatians at the end where it talks about the, the full armor of God, that we're fighting against principalities and, and spiritual powers, even things that we don't see, there's this epic kind of good and evil battle going on all around us at times. And you have to understand that the leader of the captain of evil has always been and always will be Satan. But Jesus says something in John chapter 8 when he's talking to some folks, where he's, he's, he's talking to them about uh, the influence that's in their life. And he says, you're acting just like your father, Satan. And at the end of that particular verse, you can look it up, it's in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you're just like your father, Satan, who is the father of lies. Ultimately, what Satan operates with is, is mistruth, it's, it's falsehood, it's lies. He's trying to deceive us into thinking and believing things that are not 
true. And so Jesus, in this moment, when Satan's saying, I can give you this authority, it's been given to me, I can give it to you, I can give you splendor, I can give you glory, I can do all of that kind of stuff, Jesus is going, no, you can't. You can't. And then he responds in verse 8 by saying, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So last week, Jesus used a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. This week, this particular passage is quoted directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's specifically Deuteronomy 6.13. It comes right after Jesus had given, or, or Moses had, had given that amazing great commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and sharing this with your family, and writing it on your doorpost, and all of that. A few verses later, it says this particular verse. It says, only worship the Lord your God. Like, he is a jealous God. He is, he's the only one worthy of being worshipped. And so Jesus says, your offer to me, even though it was a lie, you can't actually give me what you offered. Your offer to me is asking me to do something that God specifically has said I cannot do and I should not do. I can't worship you and worship God. It's like when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't worship with God and money. Like God doesn't share worship with anything or anyone. And so Jesus calls him out. He doesn't even call him a liar. He doesn't say, you don't have that authority. He says, listen, even if you could give me all of that, ultimately I know that I cannot serve anyone but God. I'm to worship the Lord my God and serve him only. Jesus knew that the things that Satan offered, get this, we're already a part of God's plan for his life. That's another beautiful thing about this. So Satan's offer was, I'll make you the king of the world. And Jesus it has to be thinking in this moment, yeah, that's what I'm going to be anyways. I mean, think about it. Think about what Jesus said right before we get to the, uh, the, um, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, chapter 28. We typically look at verses 19 and 20, right? Go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Make disciples, teach them to all the ways how to follow me. I will be with you until the end of the age. We know that. Those are our marching orders as Christians. But you know the verse right before that. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18. He came near and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Immediately following the second battle of good and evil, if the first battle was in the wilderness and the second battle was fought on the cross and over in the resurrection, immediately following the resurrection, as Jesus is walking the earth before he hops a cloud back to heaven, before he gives us our marching orders, he rightfully says, I am now the king of the world. This is my kingdom now. All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus could say no to Satan's offer. Even if Satan could have given it, Jesus said no because he recognized that what Satan was offering was already part of God's plan for him in the end. So ultimately, what Satan was offering Jesus, even if he could deliver, and mind you, he couldn't, was a shortcut to experiencing the things that God wanted him to experience without having to go through all of the things God was going to use in Jesus' life to ultimately for the world to see and demonstrate he is, in fact, the king of the world. Satan was saying to Jesus, listen, if 
you'll just bow down and worship me, we can press the fast forward button. You can avoid all of the pain that goes along with God's plan. If you'll just worship me, I mean, that dying on a cross thing, that sounds terrible. You don't want to do that. I tell you what, let's just avoid the whole nails in the hands, nails in the feet thing. Let's, let's avoid the whole facing trial. Let's avoid like the fact that people are going to pick Barabbas over you and the rejection, the humiliation that you're going to experience as a part of that. Let's avoid all of the bad stuff and let's just focus on what's God's already probably I'm just going to help you get there a little quicker it's just it's just a shortcut to what God wants you to have and you now you start to see this temptation in Jesus's life and I think if you think about it that way what you start to see is that this is a, a type and a kind of temptation that you and I see quite a bit the temptation to shortcut God's experiences ultimately for what God's plans might be for in our life and I think a question we might ask in light of this temptation would be something like where might we be tempted to take a shortcut to God's plan and purposes for our life? Where might we be tempted to do without the experiences that God wants to use in our life to finally get to that final destination or that good thing that God has for us on the other side of those experiences? Because in avoiding all of that, we would take a shortcut and miss out on part of walking with God and understanding what it means to be in a relationship with God and really appreciating that final destination. So look back on your life. I think all of us can look back on our life and see places where it's like, man, I, like, I got to a really good spot. Like, like maybe that's your marriage, for instance. Like you look, you're, you're sitting next to somebody, and you're like, man, I just, I'm so lucky, you know, that I'm married to this person. Like, this is really good. I never imagined... 10 years ago that my life would be in this place. And I don't know where you were 10 years ago, but you may have never imagined that like being married to this person, having a kid, no kid, whatever, whatever that is, that like you would ever have gotten to this point. And you can look back and you go, man, it wasn't all like sunshine and roses and daisies and great experiences to get here. In fact, I, I experienced quite a bit of heartbreak here and there were some things that I had to go through there. In fact, I was dating somebody 10 years ago and I had to experience a really painful breakup just so I could be available to marry this husband or this wife that I'm sitting next to right now. And we can look back and we can understand that like to fast forward would be to take out some of the most beautiful, even most painful, painfully beautiful experiences that God allows us to go through so that we can truly appreciate and understand his goodness and understand what he's meant for us all along. Like I wonder if you can look back on anything in your life and say, it wasn't easy to get there, but I'm glad that I went through that. I'm a better person because of it. I appreciate it more. I'm better prepared to do something with it now because of the things that I've been through. And Satan offering for us to fast forward or even shortcut all of those experiences, you see that, that that's robbing us of the experience. One, one practical thing that I was thinking about this week, in light of making my list last week, mind you, because I did make my list. One of the things on my list, if I'm going to be honest, is to gossip. That's one of the things I'm tempted to do from time to time, to talk about other people, or maybe not even talk about other people, but to want to be privy to the conversations where other people are talking about somebody else, right? Like, we all want to be in the know. And I think about gossip, I think gossip is terrible. Like, ultimately, it's terrible. Like, I never feel better later after having gossiped. Like, in the moment, there's a rush, just like with every other temptation that you give into. It's like, oh, I'm in, the, I'm in the know. I'm part of the cool crowd. People trust me. And then afterwards, you're like, golly, why did I say that? Why did I even let that guy say that about that person? Like, what was going on? And so if I think about gossip for just a second, and I think about the temptation of, of taking a shortcut 
This may make no sense to you whatsoever, but to me it made sense in my mind, so maybe I'm just weird, okay? Gossip, to me, is the temptation to shortcut your way to deeper and more meaningful relationships. And I even think that gossip is a deceptive or false offer to do that. So when you think about gossip, you think about like, I'm, 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 I want to talk to somebody, let's say like me and William over here, like we're talking about Shannon for whatever reason, okay? I mean, Shannon's the nicest guy in the world. I don't know why we'd ever gossip about Shannon, but he does work at a car dealership, so we can come up with something, okay? I say that as a lawyer, so please don't be offended. But let's just say, you know, whatever. And, and I want to I be better friends with, with William. And, and so I, I heard this thing about Shannon or whatever, and I'm, I'm, we're hanging out, whatever. And I'm like, did you hear that thing about Shannon? And I'm thinking that if I, if I tell him about something, if I kind of let him in on a secret a little bit, right, that he's going to trust me a little bit more. He's going to be like, oh, Nathan's got information, you know. Like in my mind, I can see how I rationalize he's going to like me more or think better of me because I can inform him about something else that might be going on, right? I'm shortcutting a relationship in which William and I need to spend time building trust with one another and having shared experiences so we can reach a, a deeper level of friendship. But I see gossip as a way of just kind of pressing the fast forward button on all that. It's like, oh, we've already reached that deeper level. We're talking about somebody else now, you know. And that's how gossip works, is that we have this thought that if, if, if I can talk about something, if I can let somebody in on this secret about somebody else, then, then they're going to trust me, then they're going to like me more. And we're fast-forwarding what God has intended for relationships, which is experience and time and building trust over showing that you can understand who I am. Like, in fact, that's probably why gossip doesn't ever really work to do what we think it's going to do, because you know and I know that when somebody gossips, again, there's the allure of the moment, that, 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 that instantaneous, momentary kind of high, like, oh, I'm in on something I shouldn't be. But afterwards, you think poorly about yourself and typically about the others who are part of that gossip circle. And then I go, oh, right? Like in our moment of clarity, like if they're talking about Shane in that way, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not around. And I wonder if we were to take a step back and look at this temptation that, that the devil gave to Jesus in this moment of, of, of bypassing all of the experiences that God intended Jesus to have so that he could be ultimately the king of the world. I mean, Jesus was the king when he was born. Let's be honest. The angels proclaimed that to the shepherds. But for the world to understand that Jesus was the king of the world, he had to go through what he went through. He did that for us again. He said no for us to experience all of those things. I mean, he could have said, listen, Satan, already the king, all right? But he didn't. He said, it's not right for me to worship anybody other or serve anybody other than the Lord my God. And the Christian life oftentimes does not mean instant gratification. The Christian life is much more like a diet, right? It's one thing to go, hey, you have terrible heart health. And you're like, okay, well, I'll eat a salad tomorrow and that'll clear it up. You know, I mean, like, that's what we want to do. We want to just like, like one good meal and like we're already back on. It's like, hey, you could stand to lose a few pounds. All right, so like what? Like fruit tomorrow? You know, I mean, like that's what we think. 
right? And, and this, is, this is the world that we have, but it requires discipline. It, it requires kind of this long-standing, steadfast obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson kind of talks about, that we just kind of have to do it day by day by day. Anybody that's ever had any kind of significant transformation in their life can tell you it requires discipline. You're going to have to make decisions, daily decisions, over and over again. It's almost like Jesus knew that when he said, if anyone wants to follow me, they're going to have to take up their cross daily and follow me. He didn't say, if you want to follow me, let's take up our cross one time. He says, you're going to have to do it daily and follow me. The Christian life is not about instant gratification. And this is so hard. Why is this so hard? Because you and I live in a world that like instant gratification is the core message of every marketing, every advertiser in the world. It's right. Hey, your feet hurt. You're one pair of on clouds away from not only feeling good, but looking good. I mean, guys, just walk through Rankin County. Like, I, I was literally standing in line at a place, and there were 12 pairs in line. Like, I feel left out. Like, I am missing out on something by not having a single pair of shoes. It's why we like, oh, I'm feeling so terrible. I need a haircut. What is a haircut going to change? In the moment, it looks good, right? Like, oh, my gosh, you take the selfie, you post it, everybody's, I love your hair. And then, like, two days later, that thing that made you feel bad and drove you to a haircut, guess what? It's still there. But we are, we are just sold this bill of goods that if we can make one change, it's going to revolutionize everything in our life. We are promised immediate results, immediate relief by so many things that leave us wanting more in the end. The Christian life is one of, of discipline. It's not instant gratification. It's one of sacrifice. It's not one of ease. And so we started looking at this game plan last week, this three-step game plan for facing temptation and overcoming temptation. I'm running out of time here, so we're just going to get through this. We started last week with identifying our most dangerous cravings. That's the idea of making a list of the things that are going to be most difficult for us to say no to in the face of temptation. I already shared with you, one of mine was, was gossip. And so I want to be mindful of that and sensitive to that, and that when I hear people talking about other people, to not only be the one that says, ah, I'm out on this, but maybe even drop a truth bomb like, hey, you sure you want to talk about them? They're not here. And then I get myself out. You know what I'm saying? Like I want to be proactive and then, and then pull myself out so that I don't fall into that same kind of temptation. So we make a list. Then we start fighting. And we're going to talk about that this week. And then next week we're going to get to determining and committing to our why. Because there has to be a reason that is more compelling to say no than the offer to say yes is enticing or alluring to us. All right? So when it comes to fighting temptation, I kind of outlined this last week, but I want to spend a little bit of time looking at some passages of Scripture that I think support this. When it comes to fighting temptation, we've got to stay away from the people and places that you know will lead you to be tempted. The best way to fight temptation is to avoid temptation. You're not going to get into a temptation that you don't face. This is going to require some difficult decisions that you're going to have to make. Okay, Matthew 6.13, part of the Lord's Prayer. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. Right smack dab in the middle of that prayer, it says, And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's very difficult to pray this prayer and then continue to choose to put ourselves in the line of fire when it comes to temptation. In fact, it's going to be tough to argue that you are serious about overcoming temptation if you continue to put yourself in the line of fire and in the places and around the people where you know you're going to struggle the most with the temptations that are hardest for you to say no to. The second thing you want to do in fighting temptation, be honest with at least one other person about the things on your list. The things that are going to be hardest for you to fight, you need to enlist the support of at least one good friend. I would argue two or three, but find a friend, 
right? You may have heard like everybody needs a friend that they know they can call at any time to help them bury a dead body, right? That's kind of a, a morbid way to talk about it, but I would argue it'd be better to find a friend that would keep you from killing the person before you had to bury their body, right? So like if ever you're tempted to take someone else's life, maybe have a friend that you can call and say, I'm about to kill them, and they're like, oh, don't do that. You know, so that's a great thing. Here's one of my favorite passages of scripture. And in context, it's great when it comes to temptation. Paul writes in Galatians chapter six, he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, right? If you're overtaken, temptation is allowed you to cross the line. You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. All right, so we're putting two together. Don't drag someone into your mess. But then it says, Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens is all tied to them struggling with wrongdoing, with them struggling with temptation. This is why we enlist the help of somebody else. You don't want to sin. This isn't confession. This isn't saying, listen to all the terrible things I've done. This is enlisting the help of a friend and saying, these are the things I don't want to do, but if it comes time and I'm more frustrated and I'm exhausted enough, I'm afraid I might say yes. So I need to talk to you about them. And that's very, very helpful. The third thing is to decide how you'll say no when you're tempted. Come up with your game plan. Come up with your statement. What is it going to be? How are you going to say it? Right? The verse that I like about this one is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Right? You're not going to be the first one to face the temptation you're facing. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So don't ever say that you're overwhelmed by temptation to the point where you can't possibly say no. Because if God is with you and the Spirit is inside of you, that is not true. Look how he finishes it. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. I think there are a couple of ways that this, that this particular verse has come up in my life. Like There is surely left a chance a fortuitous phone call or text message in the moment where I'm about to do something and it just so happens my dad calls. Whoo! Thank you, Dad, for calling. I was about to do something really stupid. But I got to tell you, I don't think this verse is supportive of just leaving to chance the thought that there might be something that happens in the moment. Like, oh, that's the thing. I think part of the way that God provides us a way out of temptation is that we proactively think about it ahead of time as to how we're going to answer, how we're going to respond, how we're going to move away from temptation. It would serve me well to come up with a statement when I'm invited into a gossip conversation. Maybe that statement is something like, guys, that sounds really interesting. On a different day, I'd probably say yes, but I've decided I don't want to talk about somebody outside of their presence, period. And every time I'm, I'm tempted or invited to gossip, I just say that. I just, I figure it out. I memorize it. I say it. And with every temptation you face, I believe that there's a proactive way of thinking about how I can say no in the face. When I've done my best to avoid it, but it's still there, what am I going to do? The core of temptation, the core of temptation is deception. It's lies. And the best way to fight lies is with truth. So we've got to immerse ourselves in the truth. That's why we read scripture. That's why we spend time around the people that are going to reinforce the things that are true about us. Jesus could say no to temptation. He could say no to the lie because he recognized that what the Satan was saying to him wasn't true. 
And the more we immerse ourselves in the truth and become acquainted with the truth, we can also say no because we recognize that's a lie and I know what the truth is. So this particular week, I gave you a challenge last week. It was to make a list. It was one meal, one list, one prayer. This week, it's super simple. You ready for it? Find your person. Find your person. Listen, I just don't think fighting temptation alone is an option. Not if you want to be good at it. And I think taking that list like we did last week and praying about it, God, you know these are the things that, that, that I struggle with the most. I don't want to give in to them. So remind me that you love me. Remind me of your purpose for me. I think that's a great, great start. But I think it's going to take more than that. That particular Galatians passage has probably spoken to me the most this week of, of, of helping one another carry our burdens. Listen, this is hard because this requires some level of like intimacy, some level of like letting your guard down in a way that does not come very easy to almost any of us. There's a few of you that are like open books. You'll share this with everybody. I get that. You're great. Most of you don't. Like most of you, most of you, most of us, I'm going to put myself firmly in that group, do not want to even share what we're most tempted by with somebody else in fear that they're going to think differently about us. So let me give you one one word of insight into finding your person. Offer yourself to be that person for somebody else and see if maybe they would just simply reciprocate. It's probably somebody that you have a level of trust with. This isn't like a stranger on the street. This isn't the same the person you're riding on the plane back with. Or I was like, hey, can we be friends? Can I text you if I have a temptation? That's weird. <laughs> but I bet you have a friend you may not even know it. I bet you have a friend that if you were to go to them and say, listen, I've been, we've been talking about temptation at church. My pastor's got some crazy ideas. One idea he has is that I should have a person that I can talk to about the things I'm most tempted by. I'm not talking about confessing my sins. We'll get there another time. But I just want to talk to you about the things that tempt me. Like, would you trust me with the things you're tempted by if I promised no judgment? I realize that you're sharing those with me because you don't want to do them. That's great. Like, we're not, we're not even going to go there. We're just going to talk about what we're being tempted by. Offer yourself up as that person for somebody else and see if they reciprocate. Because you do not want to fight this battle alone, but you do want to start fighting right now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to continue looking at uh, Jesus' battle with Satan in the wilderness and just what we can learn from that. God, in that moment, um, he certainly wasn't by himself. He was led there by the Spirit. He had you firmly in his corner. God, he had the truth of Scripture, um, the view of the world that he created all there in that moment in which he faced Satan and said, listen, I'm, I'm not taking the shortcut. I'm not, I'm not going to bypass all of the experience that God has intended and planned for my life to ultimately lead me to that final destination that he has for me just because I want to avoid pain, just because I want to avoid the things that are going to hurt, just because I want to avoid the, the, the awkwardness and, and the difficulty. And God, I'm so thankful that you did that. God, I'm thankful that you went through what you went through on our behalf, that you died on a cross for us. God, you were already king of the world. You didn't, you didn't need to die on a cross to be the king, but you did so that we'd have a savior. And so God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for Jesus, for his decision to say no for me, for every person in this room, for every person who recognizes that they need something outside of themselves to be the person you've created them to be. Lord, we want to avoid temptation because we recognize where it leads. We want to have a better life, and we, we seriously want to make our, the lives of the people around us better. 
And I believe, God, that if we just continue to lean into what your word says about fighting temptation, we'll be closer to becoming that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.